Yeah. <laughs> Botox he and virgin blood. <laughs> Keep you young. He might have had some work done. We don't know Adre- that for adrenochrome. sure. You know, that's you're really rolling the dice when you're doing work, though. Because sometimes it comes out great, and other times you look like Courtney Cox in Scream 5, and uh, she didn't look that bad. I didn't need it's very distracting how much work she's clearly had done. Though. I think, <laughs> I think she looked fine. It was distracting to me, and, and, think, especially she, next to Nev Campbell, who looked great. She, she would have look looked better if she just like let her, you know, age through a little bit. She's a friend; she can. <laughs> Do you know yeah, the pressure? I think she jumped the gun on that. Like, why did she have to go that route? You know, that was years <laughs> ago that she started looking really, really strange. She yeah. might have even had work to bring her back to her original look. That was my theory. Look, she was married to David Arquette for a very long time. We don't know what that did to her. Fair fair point. (laughs) You know? That is a very fair point. Um, Um, It's funny. When I was making people watching, the two of them came to the hotel where I worked to plan their wedding. No, they Um, really? Is this real? Yeah, that's real. I I mean, that was like, they were were at a peak, like, famous time. That was 20, you know, two years ago, 23 years ago, something like that. But she was very on point you know, talking to the staff of the hotel about where they wanted things and what was happening. And he was so um, funny because he's like a funny guy, but he was almost like um, just like off in his own world while she was doing all the talking with the wedding stuff. He was just kind of like, you know. Oh, that sounds about right. He's a real character. Uh, it, it It's weird to me how people like that really get into Hollywood. Because like Ready to Rumble had to be like his peak, right? That movie was huge. That was big. They brought him on WCW and Randy he won a saw belt. that movie. Yeah, Randy saw it. That's how big it was. Probably had a French <laughs> director too. But well, you know, they that they're like a legacy family though. They already had like Patricia Arquette. Yeah, and yeah. really Rosanna Arquette was like yeah. the beginning of that legacy. A lot of the things people don't know too. You know that there was like these. You know, people think of the Crips and the Bloods as like the premier gangs of Los Angeles. And yet there were these two different, completely different gangs called the suicidals and the lads suicidal tendencies was the front band of the suicidals that look exactly how you'd imagine with like the cut off chinos or like the shorts and the pull up socks and the bandanas that go, you know, like almost over their eyes. That's like early Mike Muir. And then the lads was like an acronym for Los Angeles death squad. And they look like greasers, you know, the social distortion. And Mike Ness was the, they were like the front band of that group of like, you know, this gang and the Arquettes were like aligned with the lads. That was like, a, if you, if you were hung out in LA, that was kind of a known thing, you know? What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so we're talking about the band suicidal tendency. Yeah. yeah the suicidals was like a West side thing. And the lads was Hollywood. That was the East Side. This is why I can't get into hardcore music. There's too much a like, gang activity. The Randy, the, <laughs> but, I, you know, that wasn't he, really a known thing though. Like you had to yeah. kind of be around LA. I feel like to know that, even if you just knew about the bands when you liked the bands when you were kids, you know, or younger, or whatever. I, you know, I'm probably dating myself. So, are you? Were you a hardcore kid when you were younger? Yeah. What were you spinning? Very hardcore. I was into like anything punk, metal, you know, start out Metallica. That was like the first concert I ever went to was in Justice for All at the San Diego Sports Arena on that tour. I want to say that was like sixth, seventh grade, something like that. And yeah, I was into all that stuff. That was. All right, Randy, test him. Shoot out some deep cut hardcore bands. (laughs) 
Oh man, I don't know about any any deep oh, okay. cuts. But <laughs> I listen to you know a lot of the the usual stuff. Black Flag, Minor Threat, uh, kind of into suicidal tendencies a little bit. Crow Mags, Sick of It All, Kid Rock, all that stuff. <laughs> yep. I feel like that was like early, slightly earlier punk too. The Black Flag and you know that type of stuff. I was into that too. Yeah, but, yeah. Mostly metal and punk rock. That was my that was my thing. All right, Isaac. Uh, what about it. Meatloaf? <laughs> I, mean, I could take a couple of Meatloaf, you know, like the classic Meatloafs. He's a little, little operatic for me, but I don't hate it. I know, but know? That, there's a there's no. a slide line. He, he probably got tricked like me and bought Bat Out of Hell because the cover looked like it should be some like Frazetta shit, kind of like Molly Hatchet with their like. Don't bring Molly Hatchet <laughs> back in this conversation. It's it's oh, bad boy. a sore spot for you, huh? Oh yeah. No, and I mean, I, I literally sick. have the Frazetta painting out. Well, not the real one, but I have a replica of it in the hallway of the Viking. Yeah, like, as soon as I saw it, over. I was like, oh, you're a Molly Hatchet fan. God, that was the first, <laughs> the first year we moved into this house. That joke was every day. No, but there's an important question. He likes punk and metal. So you got to pick one. Are we going Dave Brocky or who's the other one? I just forgot his name. Uh, it's um, Blothar. I can't think of his name. No, not no. Dave. Oh, or, oh, oh. Of course, uh, Henry Black Rollins. Henry Rollins. Um, <clears throat> easy tie. <laughs> easy tie. Sorry, guys. I can't. <laughs> oh, a tie. Uh, look, Tell I don't want to live. I want to live with my mom and my dad. Okay, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to pick sides. Okay, the child of divorce over here. Okay, I'm not picking sides anymore. Well, two thirds of this program is very heavily on one side, and the other's very heavily on the other side. But we outweigh Randy because he weighs literally 112. Yeah, Randy's <laughs> vote doesn't count since he broke Edge. Henry Rollins uh, turns his back on you, Randy. I'm sure he does. All my friends do too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right, there you go. That's punk. It's him against the world. You know, that's how, that's yeah. how it's got to be. Yeah, yeah, but he's 37. Also, it's him against the curb, <laughs> and the curb won. Uh, that's a callback two episodes ago, Isaac. Don't worry about it. Um, okay, so we've, we've dragged you back on the show. I think it's been a month. Uh, it's a quick turnaround, because in Found Footage February, and on a podcast that's based in the Bay Area, we had to get the story out about your film People Watching, which, um, uh, you know what? Why don't you set it up? I have an idea. Yeah, Isaac, you do the work on this show. I mean, I could no do it. Problem, but... guys. That's that's why I'm here. You know, I just to do the heavy lifting. Anything you guys need. Well, because yeah. you know, you just talked about like some uh, deep street knowledge from L.A., but I'm curious how you made your way up into the tenderloin where you hung out at a window and filmed everybody down on the street. And this is not today's tenderloin. No. We're, we're well, I got to tell you, was you know, I sent you guys some pictures. I had to go on Google Map. And just look at the street corner, and it was like shocking, you know, somehow to just see it essentially kind of looks the same. There are elements from the time that I lived there 23 years ago, like Cancun Taqueria and uh, the luggage store, which is like in the cool art gallery. Like at the time they were doing, I had no knowledge of what that even was when I was living there because they just had this painting in front that was an old like twist you know who was like a famous graffiti artist who died his work is worth a lot of money he had done a painting on the front of that thing and um 
Yeah, those are still there. The, there's a nail salon where the entrance is at the vestibule to 10.005 Market Street. It used to be Lane's Jewelry and is now something else. And that vestibule was the was the only inlet on the whole block. If you walk down the block, every storefront is like completely flat up on the sidewalk. So people used to make their way into that thing and all manner of like bodily fluids and you know like just if, if i may be blunt I, you know there was semen throw up piss shit blood you you think of it it was there someone actually died in the vestibule one time when i, I was coming out there was a guy who was laying there who did not look like he was in great shape and then when i came was coming back there was actually some homeless guys picking his pocket I said, hey, is that your friend? You know, like, <laughs> like confrontationally. And he said, no, 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 no. And then they kind of scampered off. And then about a, two hours later, the police were there to take this poor guy out. I don't know what happened to him. But uh, I mean, I don't think he was murdered. I think he just like uh, expired or something. But um, yeah, that was the introduction to that place. I was I went to school in San Francisco and got my degree at SF State in animation and film. And then I had moved out. I'd moved out to Oakland and I was living out in West Oakland for a couple of years. And then when I got a job working at this hotel called the Prescott, which was up on post street, um, right by union square, I ended up moving back in and I went to go look at this apartment at 10 zero survive market, which was like reasonably close to the hotel. So I thought if I was there and I'm, I'm working there, you know, that would be an easy thing. Honestly, the, the true story of what happened is just, I went to go look at the place in the daytime and it looked fine. And I was not <laughs> familiar with that corner. And so I just went in and said, yeah, I'll take it. I'll sign, you know, sign the paper right there. And when I came back at night with my stuff, was like the first inkling of there's this is going to be like a, a situation here when i was carrying my tv and i had a guy run up to me and say how much you want for that tv you know yeah. like thinking i had stole the television from someone which was you know at first entertaining and then there's like this long list of weird things that happened as i moved into the place you know essentially too what what it is that like people respect you if you live there yeah so they see you coming in and out in general people are respectful of you and not trying to front on you but like if you're any sort of passerby pedestrian interloper get ready to have something weird happen to you at that corner and so you know i had just like finished film school i had finished working on james and the giant peach which is the first movie that I worked on and I had this in my head somehow that I wanted to you know like make a film or be a filmmaker and I really had no knowledge of how to get there or what to do and then when I was living at 1005 market there was a camera store across the street and I went over there one day and just bought this tiny little Sony Zeiss camera and I used to leave it by the window and as you lived in that place up on whatever the fourth floor is what I lived on the top floor you would hear things happening outside the window and when you would hear something going on for long enough then I would pick up the camera and I would start filming and that's the kind of the beginning of what happened and then 
then I just kind of started filming. I would just sit there and film. And so that was how the whole thing, because the movie was shot over the course of two years God and came damn. to, you know, came to an abrupt end. Uh, okay. Hold on. Can you talk a little bit about the Sony Zeist? Like, I don't know a lot about cameras, but what kind of, is that like a mini DV thing or? Yeah, it's a mini DV camera. It's this little thing fits in your hand. It's got a little side flap screen that pops out. The Zeiss lens is something, and I'm not like a big camera lens guy or anything, but it just said right on the front, like Zeiss, you know, something, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever it is. And so that was like the camera that I had bought. Um, I actually had had a different camera that was a, like a, it wasn't a mini DV camera. It was a mini VCR cam or something like that. It okay. was really terrible, and I used to walk that around, and then I realized that like this isn't really working great, so I went to the camera store and bought that bought that camera, and then about a year into filming, I actually bought a better camera, and that's one of those little secret elements of the film, is that at one point in the film, the quality of the camera gets better as I bought this nicer camera, so it was a sort of, you know unintentionally in a way worked into the like visual language of the film that it, when the camp, you know, when the film starts, it's even more granulated, more pixelated. And then at one point when the cat power song starts and the guy is like eating this, the homeless guy is like eating this hamburger, then it, the camera has switched to this new camera, which is a little bit clearer, a little bit better. So you can see the same things, the same people you've seen in other scenes. And now it's coming through slightly clearer as you know, the idea being that you are a people watcher. When you do it a lot, you're sort of watching more and becoming more in depth. And that's something that was, again, like unintentional about the film, but sort of cooked into the way the universe made it unfold. If that doesn't sound <laughs> too like weird or esoteric, you know, it's not yeah. like I had any control over like what people were doing out there. And in some instances, like some of the most fucked up things that I actually recorded didn't even quite make it into the film for their own reasons. You know, you can feel that when you're watching the movie, like it gets a little dark in there, but you're like, like, okay, just a brief backstory with like my interaction with the Tenderloin. When um, I turned 18, I had just started my long and lovely journey in uh, tabletop gaming and I started playing D&D. And it had been something I wanted to do, but I was like too shy when I was younger. My dad played. My buddy, uh, he lived out in Little Hollywood, and we played out there for the first time. And then he moved to Sacramento Street. So if you take Bart, you walk up through the Tenderloin. The first day I ever did it, it was nighttime. We uh, were accosted by a dude with a large cardboard box. And he said, hey, y'all want some books? And we're like, oh, yeah, what do you got in there? They were fucking AD&D books. It felt like the stars had a line. I'm not shitting you. He had a box of D&D books. This dude looked rough, like he had been living in that box before he filled it with D&D. And we're like, this is perfect. We bought it. And it started about like a year and a half of hanging out on like Polk. How much did he want for him? Oh, dude, it was cheap. It was like 20 bucks. It looked like he had straight up stolen a used book portion from like a comic shop or something. Yeah. And uh, he had I'm, definitely straight up stolen a used book portion. Oh, dude, for <laughs> sure. And the thing is... He, just for people who haven't been out here, especially like around when Isaac was out there, it was night and day. In the daytime, you kind of have like touristy people going to like cigar shops and stuff. But at night, 
it was so crowded out there. Yeah. And it was all kind of shady. Like you'd get a lot of like frat kids and stuff who would go out there and bar hop. And it was just like chaos. So the fact that, you know, you were up in a window filming it, I almost like watching the film, I'm almost like scared for you. Cause if you hang out on the street out there, people start to pick it up. And I mean, I didn't live there. So they would know. They'd be like, man, what the fuck are you doing here? So, you know, when you're up in that window, did you have a chair? Were you on a tripod? Were you there for like long periods of time or? You know, depending. Like I said, I mean, you just leave the camera by the window on this stack of like vinyl or something. I don't know. It was like <laughs> a, like a little shelf or something that was right there, a stereo. And the camera would just sit there. It was plugged in, ready to go. And then you just pop it off and start shooting. And then over time, it became you would just sit there and start shooting. And that's, in a way, if you look at the film, that's why you can see all of these really weird small moments, like just like people's feet or they're just holding something or like, you know, people just conversing with each other or just that, you know, if you happen to sit there, you can just zero in on people. The trick with being up so high is that nobody really looks up and is trying to figure out what's going on. Like they're not paying attention to what is happening in a window way up there for the most part. I can't remember if you asked me about this before, but like you are not wrong to feel scared for <laughs> this is one of the things because the the crack dealers who live there, it, I had a lesson in learning how the crack deal works by standing there for enough time to watch what happens, which is these guys when deal in the middle of the block and then they had lookouts that would s sit at the corners and kind of check around and give them the nod to do it so it's an obvious method and a smart method in some respects you know and so those are the people that actually saw me over time and started to wonder like who is this guy and what is he doing although like if you really try to pick it apart it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if i was a cop I would have just got everyone in trouble and there wouldn't have been whatever, but there was a, like a full physical confrontation of like a fist fight, like a knockdown blowout, like punching, kicking and all the stuff that happened at the end, which was literally that would happen the last like few days that I lived there when they were waiting for me outside. And there was just, there was kind of nowhere to go. In fact, the truth is like, I don't like take a, any amount of pride in talking about like, you know, physical violence or anything like that. But I feel like to be fair in that situation, I was, did whatever I felt necessary to like defend myself and to like get away from that. So it was a pretty nasty fight and I'm almost lucky. I'm a pretty big dude, you know, and like, I'm not like, don't feel overly like timid about stuff like that. Just from kind of how I grew up that like, I was, you know, get in there and just fight my way out of it. At least I could get away. And then I had to make arrangements to move out like pretty much the next day. <laughs> oh, fuck. You know, because that was not a tenable situation. No, no. You can know, can you actually walk us through what happened? Like, did you just come outside and there were a bunch of dudes like, hey, it's the cameraman? Uh, no. Yeah, I can. Uh, well, because there's two exits to the building. There's one of the exits goes out onto Sixth Street. And then one of the exits that I was talking about is in front of Lane's Jewelry. So when I, I came out the side exit, I saw these guys down there and I had this weird feeling, you know, sometimes people watch you, but if you didn't come out or do anything, they wouldn't be there at the same. They don't keep regular hours there. So if you there was times, I think, when people saw me and then 
when I went to go leave early in the morning or someone else, like no one was there, you know, and I used yeah. to wear like hood. It's not like they could see me that well. They just knew there was a guy up there. Anyway, one of the days I saw these people there and when I walked out the door on the side on sixth street, cause I knew I had a bad feeling. So I went out the side door and there were guys there who kind of started to like advance towards me. And then they weren't like yelling at me, but I knew that they were like coming for me. So I went back inside. And when I came out the front, I just, they all ran around the corner to try to catch me. And it was like a busy day out there too. Basically what happened is like eight dudes started surrounding me, like just yelling shit at me. Like the fuck, the fuck you doing? Like that type of stuff. And I didn't really know what to say because I'm like, well, how am I supposed to explain in two seconds? Like guys, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Who just happened to and it's not really about you or your crack dealing, you know, it's just about people, you know, or whatever it was. And when someone kicked me, you know, like, there's no way to kind of judge what was happening. Someone, you know, punched me in the back of the head. Someone kicked me and I just turned around and started fucking throwing elbows and fists and just knocking people down. And there was so many people on the street. It was just created this confusion. And so like they kind of tried to pile on me, but I just kept thrashing people as hard as I could, as fast as I could, like literally trying anything I could to, physically injure someone in the most like brutal way that I could, because I was like, if I, if I am timid about this and any of these people are, if they get on me, I'm like finished. And to the point that I was able to like break up this circle and kind of roll out into the middle of the super wide sidewalk, which is how market street is right there in the front. And then there was this group of like 20 Swedish tourists (laughs) <laughs> who happened to be going right then. And I just got up and walked into the middle of this group of tourists and they just were confused about where I was. They did not, they did not see me in there. They didn't know what happened. And then I left and I, you know, this is before cell phones. So I left and I just was gone. I think I went to a bar and I went to a payphone and tried to like call a friend of mine and say like, you know, you, you got to like help me move out of here tomorrow. <laughs> Like, I'm in deep shit, all right? I just got fucked up. And then I want to say about four or five hours later, I was coming down the way that the streets are. It's kind of like a there's a pentagonal thing where, like, you know, Market is crossed by Golden Gate and I want to say, like, Larkin, maybe, or something like that. There's two, Taylor and Golden Gate come together. And there was some kind of store that had these triangular windows. So I came down Golden Gate and was looking through the windows on the far side. And those guys were still waiting there for me five hours later. Wow. So I was like, fuck left again. And I think I just came back. It was like two or three in the morning. I don't remember even what day of the week it was. I didn't think I had to work or anything. I like came down that same way. And when I saw there was literally no one out, I like ran inside and was like, holy shit. Like I'm fucking, I got fucked up, you know, like <laughs> they could call people, you know, and, work it out. And then I went and talked to the building manager the next day and was like, I'm in like a, this kind of situation right now and I need to leave. And are you going to like keep my deposit? What are you going to do? And he said, no, we'll let you go. (laughs) So I in an act of defiance, I stayed up that entire night too. And just filmed. I was like, this is the last last night I'm going to film anything. So I just stayed in there with the camera, you know, no hood, nothing like this is it. This is me. You can't do anything about it now. 
And then the next day, my uncle and my friend helped me move out. And we did it in a way that like, I just brought stuff down to the vestibule and they carried it out to the car. And then I walked out of there. And that was, that was the end of living in that, in that spot. Well, the last part of that story actually probably answers my question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Like, you know, being in that skirmish, did that have any sort of creative effect on you at all? Um, where you're like, you know, it, look, Errol Morris can have this shit. I'm not trying to document anything. <laughs> oh my God, no, of course not. There was a, The film was done, too. I mean, that's like, this is just a, a story about, like, how rough things can get, especially down in that neighborhood. But, you know, it's not like I never was getting into fights with scuffs with people ever down there, anything like that. That was not normal. Like, maybe when I was a younger kid, I got into scuffs with people at, like, hardcore shows or, like, whatever little things happen that were like people trying to beat each other up, but nothing, you know, like that was whatever. But I will, I could give some credit to my dad who was always like, if you really know that you can't get out of a fight, start trying to like hit people and don't, you know, stop until you're pretty sure you've won. Cause you don't want to just hit someone and then have them come back and pummel you, you know, cause you kind of (laughs) clock them once or something. And that was honestly, that was the thought that went through my head that I was like, this is it. There's no getting out of this now. So don't hold back. Although I just I feel strange talking about it because I would never want someone to think like I'm out to try to pummel someone for some other <laughs> reason. Then, you know, like I was literally like, I'm going to get killed by these guys. That's what's going to happen. They're going to fucking beat me until I just like, don't can't breathe anymore. Now here's the thing. Uh, we used to have a third chair on the show, uh, Justin Coote. He was the lead singer of a hardcore band, Alcatraz. And uh, I don't know what it is with you hardcore guys. You kind of romanticize the violence a little bit. And in this situation, definitely not, because uh, I'm shocked you got out of there with eight dudes waiting for you. And it's interesting because you, you say you made your way into a group of tourists. And it's like, the thing about your film is you really capture the like dual reality on the street. Because there's all this mayhem happening, and it's kind of right there in the open, but people are just walking by all the time. Like, it's, like we just put on blinders to the shit. So even though you're part of that reality, like the regular reality, even though n- now you've been kind of dragged down into it by being attacked, you've, you know, all of a sudden become ignored. And people, I'm sure, just walked right by. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what happens down there. I think that's like the funny thing if just to juxtapose that particular film versus like, or that particular corner, making a film about that corner versus any other corner, is that most corners are just boring places where people just leave. They just walk through there. That's it. There's no, there's not a pit bull trying to like fuck some homeless crack whore. And there's not like you know, psychotic people waving their arms around and like flipping out on whoever's passing by or like people taking their underpants off and putting them in a mailbox. Like (laughs) it's, you know, like, and that's the thing you like are picking all this stuff too out of that's an hour of out of essentially about like 50 at 52 hours worth of footage that was shot the same way it's edited. Like, it's not like I just sat there with the camera literally moving it as it just rolled and then trying to cut out these tiny pieces. I would just, I would just find something, zoom in, I would turn it on for a few seconds or something. And if you got something or, or you leave it on someone for a few minutes, which was sort of the emerging um, kind of way that the film 
ended up being after all the footage was done. Cause like, I didn't really know what I was supposed to do with it. Like I had a friend named David Taylor who he runs the Fer- Berkeley film archives now, but he lived in New York and he was someone I was friends with since uh, like second grade. And he's basically like my oldest friend in the world. And I somehow agreed. I got him to agree to let me come out to New York and he helped me edit the films. I didn't really know what, how it's supposed to cut together, what is supposed to happen, you know? Yeah. Okay, man. I have so many questions for you. One 52 hours of footage. Does that look like, did you have stacks of tapes? Like, did you have a box or? Yeah. Like a box, uh, two shoe boxes filled with mini DV tapes. And they're all like labeled and they're all, you know, about an hour or so long and have like, a requisite amount of footage. Like there could literally be a 52 hour version of this film, you know, where like, I didn't know at the time too, that I would just sort of make the cuts of the film as I was filming, even on something like one of the later, you know, vignettes where the guy in the, uh, the guy in the, who has his woman in the shopping cart. Yeah. It's not like I just kept filming them. Like I said, I would just change the angles and cuts and it just appears that way. Even the song, which is so there's no like trajectory to that song. That's a Brian Eno song. There's cuts in the song that you can't even hear because you're just, the music's just playing in the room as I was shooting it. Oh, so all that music is diegetic. No, in that particular scene, it is. Okay. Interesting. Damn. So with, with the music, um, were you trying to like create a narrative with that? Because we showed, I believe, at Uff One, a movie called The Road Movie, which was all uh, Russian dash cam footage. And when we spoke to the director, he talked about how he really tried to create a narrative just using music and um, seasons. Like, I think we start in the winter and we move mm-hmm. towards hell. And then as soon as he mentioned the Kremlin, we lost connection. Yeah. And then Putin cut us <laughs> off. But like with this one, like what was the idea with the music? Yeah, the music is there to make a narrative. I mean, the narrative of the film is so simple in a way which it can be explained. It's just it's not really meant to be explained to you unless you want to know. Like it's not relevant to how you would watch the film. But it basically the the you know the music is synced up in a way to like the feeling of the piece itself. So cool. there's more more movement when you're in Daft Punk and it's about the building and the lights, you know, the like the, you know, the, you know, the like fire alarm lights going off in the building yeah. next door. It's, you know, the cat power song where the guy's eating the hamburger and the, you know, the even my favorite things, which is sort of like the weird version of like a happyish ending to the film or like a lighter version of it somehow. Um, but like, you know, the trajectory of the movie is that you follow the path of the, of the person behind the camera who is like beginning to look at people in tiny flashes. And as you see this thing, that thing, the other thing, and then you start to look at something for longer and longer and the vignettes get longer and longer as you focus in on what it means to like, just examine one person versus all these things that are passing while it sort of creates exactly what it is, which is the feeling of like looking down on a street corner. There's really not much to it in that way. It's like, I don't, you know, like I'm thrilled when people watch this movie and enjoy it. 
And I feel like there's so little credit to take. And I'm not trying to sound like some lofty filmmaker, but like (laughs) I didn't get to like create that in a way that you would a regular film. I just happened to be the right observer, the right time, the right place. And in some respects, the right person and the very wrong place, especially when I thought I was about to get stomped to death by eight dudes. Yeah. Now, Isaac, how tall are you? I'm like just over six feet. Okay, you're a big dude. You you found those Norwegian tourists, and they thought a Viking was coming for refugee. I, I you, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I um, there were poor people. They didn't even know what happened. They didn't even know that there was something wrong when I was walking through the middle of them. I was like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they keep their mouths shut. The Norwegians aren't rats. <laughs> That's true. That. Now here's the thing. You know, it's already a big ask whenever you call the friend the number one friend usually and you're like hey can you help me move that's a test of friendship now when you add the caveat of hey there might be eight dudes trying to kill me can you come help me move uh how were they excited about this or no they understood in fact i called my friend josh who i lived with in oakland they have their fair share of problems in Oakland too. You know, they had like, <laughs> after I, Confirmed. after I had moved out of that place, like they had had like a dude, like, you know, like hold him up at gunpoint and rob him. you know? Yeah. And I feel like, I, and like go into their house and like tie them up. Thankfully, Wait, no, one, what? <laughs> no one was hurt. Yeah. This is a, okay. this is a long time ago. And I think they were looking for funny games. So, they, so were they, they somehow, <laughs> yeah, a little bit, something like that. I think they were looking for the weed stash, which was already gone. So there was really nothing that it could have been done at that time, uh, you know, for him. But like, thankfully, the guys didn't get angry and like execute them, you know. But they, I think they were coming off that. So when I called him and said, "Look, dude, like you got to come help me," he was like, "Dude, I got your back. Okay, tell me where. Tell me when." He was like, "You're a bitch." There's just eight dudes waiting outside. He was like, I was tied up with a gun to my head. Yeah, what yeah, exactly. Like, I got you. You know, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Been here before. God damn. Okay. Well, so one of the things that we do look at because I I totally understand your point where you're like you know I all I did was film, which honestly turned out to be an incredibly ballsy move. But there is another aspect to this which is kind of more prevalent now in the age of the internet, where we have a person with you know a plethora of media out there who kind of they sift through it all and they create a narrative out of it. Now. In your film, People Watching, there are, like, again, the pacing. We do uh, linger with a a dog who's trying to get his with the lady for a little bit. But there are a lot of, like, rapid shot moments. And there's a lot of beautiful moments in there. Uh, one of Oksana's favorites was a lady in um, what Oksana described as terrible shoes. Got some gum stuck to her shoe. And tries to get it off. And now here's, here, I'm driving at the, the role of the editor in these films and you brought in your friend uh shout out to david taylor who did you guys just sit down and comb over 52 hours of footage and like with, with the notepad write down hey uh tape 42 minute 13 we need to pull that you know no in fact uh, honestly like david was instrumental in helping the overall editing of the film but he really had to set me up to edit it so like he's credited with editing the film, but like I for sure did like a majority of the legwork because he, you know, he, at the time, like he worked for this company shooting gallery, which was a 
they were a smaller film company. Like I think they did like the rum diaries and they had done, or they had done like the Mothman prophecies and a few of these like kind of cool films. They had the weird story where they got bought by a gold company and the gold company went like defunct. And then it just wrecked their company, even though like there was no problem with their company. But I mean, he was of this thing. Like I can't sit here for 50, you know, like it, it takes eight hours about to edit one tape. So like I had set like four months or something of work and I, I moved to New York city, did not know barely a single person except for my relatives here who like, they didn't really, you know, they don't live in the city, they live outside of the city. And I just get this place in Soho and then I would take the train, the J train from Soho to Woodhaven, Queens every day and just go into this basement where he lived. And when I would get there, when he was going to work. And then I would leave when he got home from work and I would just be in there. It was just me and four cats. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like awesome. I would sit there at, at the decks and I would create these files of compressed, like here's a piece we know we want to use, or here's like a couple minutes. And then once those 50 something tapes were compressed into maybe three or four hours or something like that of like, these are all the best shots that I can find. Then him and I work together. But yeah, there's definitely a way that, you know, that's a super important element in the film is creating the, the pacing narrative of like, here's a shot. There's a bunch of shots here. What are you doing? How are you jumping around? And then getting to, you know, like just finding the most interesting moments you can from following a person here or there and kind of webbing those things together so that it just feels like it's just this cascade of imagery or something which is how it feels like to be on a street corner. But obviously you can't, you can never recreate what it feels like in real time. It has to be film time, which is so much faster, you know? So you're compressing two years and you're compressing like so much boring time of looking at people as they do (laughs) nothing to find a moment when they got gum stuck to their shoe or when they, you know, did move their hand in some weird way or they just did something, you know, or, you saw someone doing something weird, you know, at, at any point, did you ever consider doing like a VO or any other kind of like manipulation? I mean, definitely there were some iterations of the film where I thought this, you could crisscross the imagery with the narrative of something. But like, yeah. I felt like then, like I'd seen that early Christopher Nolan film following, you know, where the guy just follows people around yeah, And it felt like, really, maybe that's not necessary. But, I mean, you could still do that, create a narrative about it, this person who's like a watcher and, you know, or web those elements together if you wanted to. You know, in a way, what's strange is that we're talking about something that happened now. This is 23, 24 years ago when it started to film. This was like, you know, 98, 99 into 2000, something like that. So it's kind of mind boggling to me when you turn around and look at the Google image of the street corner now and you're like, you couldn't really even recreate the look of what it is, you know? Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things. Like, I mean, you call it people watching and there's a lot to get from this film just there. Like all the fashion, man, it's such a snapshot in time. I am. I don't know. It's incredible. Like hearing you talk about it, it's very clear that you were going for like a energetic in the moment, kind of like very realistic approach. 
but I, I, I can't help but wonder what it would be like if you were just lying. Like if you had a VO and you were just giving these people stories over it, like you're kind of some weird voyeur and you're like, oh, this lady, she works at the hat shop. I saw her buy drugs yesterday. She's living on the street. Like, cause you could totally just lie. And the audience is just, we're along for the ride, but you really, you leave it open. And man, uh, I mean, shot- I feel like that, that was the point though, to leave it open, but to the effect of what you just said, that was, you know, something that was not like discussed because there's, it, I mean, it was just me making the film. There's no one really to discuss it, but that yeah. was like a thought that for sure went through my head where you were like, that is what you do when you people watch. So even if it's not me, the voiceover lying to you or making up a story, people make up stories in their head. Like when you see a woman and a man arguing, you're like, obviously she, she you know, he cheated on her and he, you know, and she is upset with him and she's never going to leave him. Or you, you know, you make up like a story to fill in as you're just watching. Like if you're sitting at a park or you're out somewhere and you see something happening, that you know, that's what people naturally do. So I'm like, maybe that's not. I don't want to say it's not my place, but that was just my decision with the film. Like, let's just just serve it up, you know, like to people the way it is, and let them think about whatever, wonder about what they want about why, like, what is the relationship between the man and the woman in the shopping cart, you know, there's uh, plenty to unpack just by watching it. (laughs) You're like, again, if you watch the movie a few times, you'll actually see some of the same people. Like they appear in the film for moments earlier and then they kind of come back, but you've like forgotten that, you know? Yeah. That you see them. Cause it was only afterwards when you're rolodexing through all the stuff, you're like, Oh, well look here, here we saw them here. We let's put them in somewhere earlier, That's even to the point. effect of like my friend, um, who's a guy that I work with and he's got a look. And so he knew that I was making the movie and he was like, I want to be in the movie. And I was like, all right, gonna just go stand down in the corner. And then he was like, you should be in the movie too. So I went and stood on the corner and he filmed me and I like appear in a shot somewhere. You wouldn't even recognize me now because my hair was, you know, shaved short, no mustache, no beard. I'm in there smoking, a, like taking a hit off a cigarette in the scene where like the building lights are going off. And he's there too. He's in that same scene. But I was kind of like the cheat, the cheaterish element somehow of like, you could, I guess, sort of fabricate someone into the film if you wanted to, although they did stand there like everyone else and do something. <laughs> so, you know. No, you were just doing your Hitchcock moment. You beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds, dude. I'm way into it, you know. That's <laughs> so. Do you have a particular favorite like moment in the movie? I I think one of the one that's going to be a runaway is just the underwear in the mailbox because you think you know what's going on with those two, and it just keeps evolving. And and you know what? Thank you for not doing a VO because looking back on my experience with the film, I've seen it twice now. Both times you just sit there and you're creating narratives for these people and they're clearly wrong. Everybody out there is such a character living in a different reality. I don't know. I mean, you, have- favorite? you know, I don't know if I have a favorite again, not to be like so wishy-washy about something, but you know, it's hard. It's like maybe hard for me to be objective in picking about that. You know, I wouldn't even say this is my favorite, but I remember 
when we had just finished making the movie, I was like fully living in New York and I was part of this art collective. And we had done this, like we had put together this show. It was like kind of a big deal at the time for us. And we had a screening of the movie and I just don't think people even like knew what hit them at the moment that we like got 150 people in this room to start watching it. And when we got to the scene with the dog, people literally started getting up and walking out of the theater. (laughs) And I was so like, oh, this is wonderful. Like, I was like, this is amazing to me that this is bothering people this much. They had to get up and leave and like curse. Like people were like, fuck you, dude. (laughs) And these are kids too. This isn't like, you know, foofy film critics or something like this. These are like Williamsburg hipsters who like were so like ill affected by having to sit there this as, as it went on. And then a girl that we were like acquaintances with, after it was over, like, I was just sort of, like, not, like, amused, but I was, like, like, wow, like, after it was over, like, wow, that was really something, like, that really had an effect on people, and this girl came up to me and was, like, oh, my God, that scene with the dog really turned me on. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really weird moment, and, you know, people need to see the movie, but there's a lady who's just being accosted by a dog, like, and she doesn't seem bothered. She's laughing. She slightly plays into it a little bit. But yeah, it's, Billy it's, Susan. She was in, she's encouraging it for sure. Yeah, and you know, it goes on for a while and uh, pardon my choice of words, but you're kind of waiting for a climax at some point. You're like, how's this thing going to yeah, Right. You're like, how's this thing going to end? Yeah. Sorry guys. No money shot there. <laughs> <laughs> you should have went down and helped the damn dog out. He was clearly frustrated. I mean, you know, that's not, again, that's not my place to interfere with that. <laughs> they would have thrown you out of the art collective. They're like, I look, performance anxiety is a bitch, man. You know, it's funny. What, the, the whole point of the movie, too, is sort of like, is this what people do when they don't think that they're being watched, you know? So it's just, you kind of can't, it's odd if you figure it against a film where people are acting and trying to be natural. And this, you know, is the entree into it is actually like just full voyeurism, total secret filming, zero, like, you know, I did not ask anyone's permission. I never, nobody ever signed anything. In fact, I even at the time looked into this because I was nervous about what, when once the film was getting finished, that, you know, apparently if you are filming that kind of documentary, it's called Public Domain. Oh. Out there. If you are out in public doing something, they do not have to ask for your permission to film you. So not illegal in, you know, the technical sense, but I definitely tell you people do not like being filmed, you know, (laughs) I could tell you, I do not like being filmed. Um, There was a thing that happened when I had the first camera where I used to go walk around with the camera. And this was like a kind of a disturbing thing has definitely made me think twice about just what I was doing when I was coming down the stairs of like my building and I had the camera on and I walked right out onto the street. And as I got to the corner that's in the the corner that I'm shooting for the entirety of the film, I could not really look, I was looking through the eyepiece and not looking through, this was like, there was no screen. This is like an actual old camera that had an eyepiece on it that you had to look, you know? So I was kind of looking through that. You couldn't really see properly what was going on. 
And I see everyone, there was a lot of people waiting across the street. And as I saw the corner of my eye, the, the cross signal turn to walk, I started to walk into this street. And then I realized about five steps into the street that no one else was walking. And when I pulled the camera away, there was a woman who had been hit by a car who was just laying on the ground. And there's, you know, a hundred people ish on either side, just staring at this person laying in the middle of the road. And I'm now two or three feet away from her on top of her. And I just pointed the camera down (laughs) the moment that the lady turned around and went like, you know, made this horrible, this horrible sound of blood coming out of her mouth. And I think immediately, like some guy on a bike was like, you motherfucker! And, you know, like came at me and I just you know, kind of kept walking there. Like I moved, put the camera up. It was not my intention per se to be like, let me get this horrible moment of life, you know, like, but it looked that way, I suppose. So, yeah, I and don't that, know. And that's how you started your night crawler business. <laughs> that's right. Very Jake Gyllenhaal-ish moment. You know? Okay. So, so what kind of stuff did you not put in the film because it was too graphic? Well, that was one of the things. Um, there was a whole sequence that happened too. That was, um, it was all about this homeless, this like kind of psycho lady stealing this guy's uh, crutch from him. He was a one-legged guy who used to hang around the neighborhood, and she still she took his crutch, knocked him on the ground, and like beat him senseless with the crutch. You know, the guy really had no shot at trying to do that. Um, but yeah, those those were the off the top of my head. Those were like the two incidences that like it didn't really somehow like it just felt over the line somehow to like be putting that in there. Well, it, it's interesting because you know in the '90s that's when we were getting the uh, girls gone wild and we were getting bum fights, and there was a very distinct mood change between the two and girls gone wild always felt like i don't know if consensual is the right word but uh like kind of lighthearted, where bum fights felt like we're doing something dark here and this isn't good well yeah one's one's horny one's not horny but not well the the thing the point i'm trying to make is that with people watching there is fighting in it yeah but at no point does it ever feel like somebody's life is about to end or like like crushing like like your soul's being crushed by watching it. And I definitely think a dude with one leg being beat by his crutch. That's a, that's a turn. <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think it'd be a cute gif. When well, you have Daft Punk playing over it. <laughs> oh, it could be like a Monday's gift. That's right. Me on Monday. <laughs> no, I, well, you know, there's a sequence in the film when the woman looks like she has a knife, but if I'm correct, it's just a lighter. I feel like the more that we looked into it and tried to zero in on, I'm like, I'm pretty sure she's just got one of those lighters in her hands. So not, you know, because we, you know, like to get dark, I don't know where you guys stand on this, but I felt like at that time in the nineties, like there was no, there wasn't so much filter as far as like morbidity when it came to me. So just without even trying to front or act like, I'm a good guy who would never put something like a, you know, a woman beating a one-legged man with his own crutch into submission. You know, like I had seen faces of death. They had these other videos, traces of death, which are really real videos of people getting killed. And those are disturbing to watch those. I feel like 
as like an artist or a filmmaker, you can almost justify like watching something like that once and going like, okay, I looked at it because that's how seriously I want to be able to like confront the idea of like death or seeing someone die and then like move on with my life knowing, you know, that stuff happens in the world and all this, whatever you want to call it. But I just felt like for the film too, I was like, you can get all the tone of the film without having to show, you know, a woman rolling over, spitting up blood and that type of stuff. So we like try to shift a little <laughs> bit away from that and just give you something, you know, the lighthearted version of, uh, you know, the darkness of the tenderloin. Cause right in that area too, on that block, there's all these hotels, you know, I can't even remember exactly if this is in the film or not. This was a big thing too. These guys, you know, they would go in there and have sex in the hotels and then they come out and there was like, definitely like a few sequences where like this guy, I saw this guy a few times, he'd go into the hotel and have sex and then he would come out and he would use newspapers to wipe his ass and then put them <laughs> in the like, you know, and put them in this trash can. So I know that was in there, but I feel like there was other times when I was like shooting in black and white or something. And those were, that was like a decision. Like we're not going to use that stuff. So yeah, there was a lot of like weird elements that were caked into that street right there too. So it just made it just nonstop, you know, like yeah. I remember like my brother coming to visit me was just like truly strange moment again, because there was no cell phones. My brother told me, all right, I'm going to be there. My brother's is a very nice guy too. And he said, y'all be there seven o'clock. And I said, cool, I will be back at seven o'clock. If I'm not there already, you know, just hang out for a minute and you know, we'll, I'll meet you there. And as I was driving up on market street, in my car, I see my brother standing there just with his arms crossed, looking like this totally normal dude in front of Cancun Taqueria. And this like skate kid just takes a swing at this dude with his skateboard, this homeless guy, and just cracks this dude in the face and starts beating him. And my brother's just like, oh, like I just my brother didn't even see me. He's just like just stepping away from this like problem. And then I'm like rolling down the window, like, hold tight, I'll be there. I'm just gonna park, you know. And <laughs> my brother coming upstairs to visit me and just even the course of the night, like the noise and stuff, that he was just like, I have no idea how you managed to live here. Like there's people fighting outside, there's it's just the noise was like intense. But like to me, after you live there, you just you stop hearing it. Your like brain just filter out, you know the car horns and the sirens and all these things are just like barraging you all the time. So Isaac, sorry if I missed this, but what's the entire length of your stay at one zero zero five market street? I want to say probably about two and two and a half years, something like that. Okay. Yeah, it is interesting. You served your time. Oh, I served my time there. That was an, that was a very odd place to live. I knew some of the people who lived there. Um, there was another thing that happened in the building if while we're on the <laughs> topic, if, you know, if, if we're just going to go there. Um, there had been a guy who lived in the ele- – he lived next to the elevator on the third floor in apartment 301. And when I had, like, taken a cab home, this was, like, right after Christmas. I was taking a cab home. I said – got in the cab, and I said, yeah, go to take me to 1005 Market Street. The guy was like, what are you going down there to buy crack? And I was like, oh. no, I, li- I live there. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, really? I live there, too. 
And I said, oh, yeah. So we're like ch- ch- just chit chatting. I go, what, what are you in? I go, I'm in, you know, 405. And he goes, oh, I'm in 301 right by the elevator. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. I've never seen you before. And he goes, you know, I just drive a cab and, you know, work at night and stuff like that, and blah, blah, blah. And um, so somewhere around February, there started to be this very weird smell in the building. Oh, no. And a lot of people started to complain about it. And so the building manager started to slip a note underneath the doorway of where that smell was coming from. And I want to say after about a week, finally someone else looked under the doorway. There was like enough space to see under the doorway and then contacted the building manager and was like, look, whatever of these notes that you guys left there inquiring what that smell is, that's coming out of the guy's apartment is they haven't been touched can still see they're all sitting in the exact same place you need to go in there they go in there and they find this guy who had died of his own natural causes but he was just wearing a pair of shorts for anyone who doesn't know this i'm going to just give you a little medical lesson here <laughs> when a body when a body lays you know in, out in the open all of the holes in your body swell shut eventually and then whatever's going on in your stomach starts the decomposition starts to create a pressure. Like as if you say you had a smoothie and you drank half the smoothie and you put the cap back on, you leave that out in the sun. Eventually that cap is going to like fly off. It's gonna burst off. It's not gonna it's not gonna like crack open and stuff. It's gonna pop off like someone shot it with a bullet. So the human body did the same thing. And basically, this guy had fallen over on his back, and his stomach cavity exploded and sent whatever was inside this guy all the way up onto the ceiling that was like, you know, a 15-foot ceiling and all over the room. And that was what they found. And I happened to be going up the elevator. I had had smelled a weird smell, but it wasn't on my floor, so I didn't really – I was not into the loop of what was happening. Anyway, the day that I was coming home, that the um, the crime scene cleanup people were there, whatever these people, there was an agency that did all of the serious, like hazardous cleanup in San Francisco at the time. They used to, SF Papers used to write about them. This guy was very successful, made a lot of money off this. Like, if something toxic or messed up happens, then you know that's what they would come and clean it up. So the elevator opened, and I saw into the room. And saw that guy sitting there, and he was the cab driver who had taken me home that night. Apparently, he had just had a sister, and the sister, you know, had called to check in with him like right after New Year's. And then he, like, I guess paid his rent like every four months at a time or something like that. So there was no issue with his rent. But then no one really, no one really knew that this guy. And that was one of those other side illustrative moments that happened you know, during the making of the film, during that time period that just illustrated to me how, like, in a way, strange and unforgiving life was in that area. As opposed to, I feel like just things like that don't happen to you normally where you're living, wherever you live, wherever you, Randy, you know, Clark, wherever, wherever you guys are, like, that's not a, I don't feel like that would be a common story, you know? No. Wow, that's did that ever like mess with you after? Like you seem pretty normal. Also, did he have pets? Oh no. No. 
Mm, Why would you even ask that? I mean, snack time. You think it's buffet in there? (laughs) God. No, but I mean, you you feel pretty well adjusted to me, Isaac. Like, you kind of walk through life unaffected. Do you carry any of this with you? I mean, of course, you know, I don't, it's been so long. I feel like you can just speak, you know, about it in a, in like a, I don't know, like a realistic way or something without, you know, being overly dramatic about it. But I'm sure all the stuff, of course, affects you. Even making the movie affected me in that way somehow, like, as you're absorbing whatever it is. I mean, not to be so, like, emotive about it, like, I am an artist, a filmmaker, and I have this thing (laughs) affected me deeply, you know, like, but, you know, it does for sure. Like, that has an effect on you and how you feel like I, when I moved out of that place and I moved to New York, I pretty much vowed at that point that I was like, I am not going to live in a neighborhood like that anymore. I'm done with that. I have done that enough. I've done it to death and I don't need to like put myself in that kind of situation. So I have to like draw a standard now for like where I'm living and what I'm doing that like, without sounding weird about it, like I have earned the right in my own mind to like, not be in a situation like that because i feel like when you're 23 24 25 you actually do a lot of weird shit that seems totally normal to you you know that you're like yeah so what you know my friends would come visit me in that place and they were like again not to be too uh you know cursy but i'm like they were just like how the fuck are you living here like this is, <laughs> this is wrong. Like you should not be in a place like this, you know. And you're like, ah, oh, it's fine, you know. It's easy. I get to walk to work. No, dude, exactly. And when you're like early twenties, you're like, it's cheap. I'm out here on my own. It's chill. And honestly, that even though the street life can be like very scary at times, when you're inside, there's an energy there. And I remember I used to love going down to Sacramento and hanging out. Like Sacramento's a little bit up off of like Polk and stuff, so it's a little out of there. But um. I mean, all night. It was much louder at night. And I remember thinking the same thing. Like, people would be like, you're crazy. Why do you all hang out up there? And be like, what do you mean? It's cool. Like, it's kind of like no rules. Like, almost like Wild West time. And people don't judge yeah. you. Yeah. It, yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Well, that was, that, that whole area had that feeling. I mean, San Francisco, to me, had that feeling. And that was also at the tail end of, you know, the like, I had worked at the Prescott Hotel. And then I had gotten a better job working at the W hotel, which is also very, you know, close to the, the six and market location. And like, that was, you know, that hotel was built for dot-com millionaires. That was the whole thing of what it was. And I felt like that was at a time when a lot of people had sort of vacated the city, you know, but the whole, the whole city from 93 to 2000 had that ish, had that feeling of like, dude, there's no rules here. You can just party. Like no one's trying to mess with you for like jaywalking or rolling a stop sign or anything like that. It's just like, if you're doing something serious, I could see you getting in trouble. But I mean, we had a lot of friends who lived down in the tenderloin and it had that feeling down there. Like who cares? You know, like we can go and you, we felt like tough enough that like maybe someone's going to try to fuck with us, but like probably we can hold our own. Like we're ready to scrap out with someone. If like something, you know, if we're getting confronted, but, you know, that was also a different thing, too, because I feel like there's one level of, like, homelessness where people just they have their hand out. They're not pushy. And in that time, like, that was a really, like, aggressive homelessness. 
you know, that was like, there are a lot of people out there who like, you know, I remember getting into, you know, like not an argument with someone, but like, I didn't really hand out change to people and I can get into that. And then like one day this guy was like, please just spare some change, anything, you know? And I said like, okay. And I just went to go give the guy change. This is right outside my, the front of my building. And the guy said like, I gave whatever change I had. And he goes, what? Like 35 cents. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Turned to this guy. Like, are you serious? (laughs) You know, like he's like, you can't give me a fucking dollar. And you're just like, Oh fucking, I'm fucking done with the shit. Like, fuck you, dude. they, They remember you too. Cause I remember we used to get Indian food out there and we, uh, we gave somebody one, one time. Every fucking time I went out there, I'd say, hey, what's up? You got some Indian food? I was like, man, go away. Like, they would just come out of nowhere. I don't, it's a trip. And it's, it, it's super interesting thinking of all the chaos you're around and the way that you filtered out the footage that actually made the movie. Because there's this interesting thing with found footage. Like, if you remember the original VHS film, uh, looking back on it, a lot of critics always kind of like, they always try to tear that movie down for being so misogynist. But I think a lot of found, I mean, which it is, by the way, it is hyper misogynist. But I think that's part of the interaction that audiences have with found footage film is we're kind of on the brink of watching shit we shouldn't be. And I think that idea is only getting stronger now with like this Internet culture, because I mean, look at um, like, what's a good example of that? Like kind of the whole uh, going away of live leaks. Or like the dark web, like there's a there's a weird super stat super um, stitious vibe around them. Yeah, and I think people are scared that they're going to see something that they can't unsee that will change them. But that's kind of what we're doing with found footage anyway. Like we're kind of right. walking the line, and um, uh, in you know, in one regard, part of me like the the darker side is like, man, I would have loved to see all that footage that didn't make it. But there's another part. It's like I don't think we really need it. Twitter's got enough like ISIS videos up there. Like uh, Clark had one that helped form him that he saw in a, a math class. So, you know, you know, there's that's it's funny. I mean, this 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 film feels tame against. Oh yeah, you know, there's like people that I work with, and they used to get into, you know, people throughout my business. Like they'll come and go, or you'll be on a crew for a certain amount of time. And there's definitely like a set of dudes that I knew who had like you know secret little text chains with like just the most fucked up videos that you've ever seen in your life that like as you get you know after you've seen enough of that you're like dude okay i don't need to see some guy <laughs> decapitated you know or like yeah. a guy, you know getting ripped apart or you know shot up by a, a bunch of gangsters or something because like people do crave that stuff you know that's that's what i was hinting at when i was talking about traces of death and whatever yeah. that was you just you know that was that was like a VHS type thing. Now it's you know even still not to be critical of something like Instagram, but I was like surprised that like there was a video circulating maybe a month ago or something like that of like these rocks breaking off a cliff and landing on these boats in Brazil, and it's like definitely eight people dying or something. That's what you're watching, and I was kind of like that was just on like people's feeds. Yeah, you know, and you're like, that's oddly morbid. You know, I'm not like railing against the grinding wheel nails of life, but you know, I was like, after I understood what I was watching, I'm like, I'm cool. I don't need to send that to anyone. You know, 
We we talked to a director in um, Australia, James Dobbin Jones, and he made a film called Charlotte's Net, and uh, it features a lot of you know Middle East violence and like you know, decapitations, a lot of actual murder in there. And um, you know, our, the first question is kind of like, where'd you get it? Like the dark web? Like where do they, all these come from? And he's like, dude, if you want to see fucked up videos, go to Facebook Live because they're there. That's where they go. And then he's like, you know, when they eventually get pulled down, they end up on Discord. And there are groups that just trade this stuff. So right. I don't know. It it seems impossible to even try and filter out all of that. But, um, you know, with Traces of Death, it's interesting because, you know, Faces of Death, is a lot of it's faked. Or a lot of it was um, broadcasted on live. Um, the monkey brains are real, dude. Yeah, the monkey. That, that's everybody's <laughs> go-to. But, like, you know, a lot of it was just news broadcasts that went out live. And, you know, you can't undo it. But with Traces of Death, I remember there's a lot of war footage in there, which is interesting because it's, it's death and it's violence on a grand scale. But for, like, a horror fan who's kind of, like, in too deep of water, it's not entertaining. Well, no, because I believe horror fans are looking for an escape. Yeah, like fantasy. And in real shit, this is not an escape. Um. Yeah, that's why, you know, I, I will never watch Charlotte Smith, <laughs> just to be clear, um, and all that stuff. Because, again, you know, when I was in the 10th grade, my math teacher showed me a real beheading video um, of an Al-Qaeda uh, event that was happening where a journalist why? got his head cut off <laughs> with a butter knife. No, but here, okay, so. Yeah, so, so no, I just, I, I don't invite that evil into my life. But, yet, you are a big fan of Snow on the Bluff. Sure. Which, which is kind of what Isaac was doing because Snow on the Bluff is um, uh, we open the movie with some people in a car and they have a camera and it's stolen during a carjacking and now we're just following this criminal who's living in like a inner city life yeah. committing crimes. Well, there's artistic merit to that. Yeah, but it's also like a stark version of like a faux reality kind of thing. Like we like this is a kind of myth that could be happening. But it's also looking at real communities. And yeah. what's happening. There is some heart in that movie yeah. for sure. But it's weird because it's so different. Like domestic violence versus uh, traces of death. I well, that's like, you know, to the effect of something like VHS, like that is gives you something close to feeling like you're watching a sort of a snuff film while not drawing you into that actually like confronting you. Like it makes it feel like you're experiencing a nightmare versus like just you know wide awake stark looking at someone dying you know which is oh yeah create a whole different thing you know i wouldn't i feel like in the fair like so many things exist out there in reality i'm not here to like make a judgment about that i bet you you can pick for yourself what you want to do or what you want to watch as far as stuff like that you know vhs i think is cool in that way, you know, that it achieves what it's supposed to do because horror does that, you know, and even if it is like without sounding like defending anything misogynistic, I feel like horror is the one area of filmmaking that people can't quite come in and take over with the PC, you know, uh, like oh, rules they're trying. That they want, they want <laughs> to apply to everything else in life. You know, it took a while. Then I feel like that kind of landed at comedy and even that's, you know, to me, like a comedian should be sort of off the hook. Maybe yep. I'm like shooting myself by voicing this opinion, but I feel like comedy is something that should be a little bit, you know, like let edgy. off the hook into so it can be edgy. 
And, you know, I feel like horror is one of the same places that's just, they don't apply the same rules to that. Even if they want to make like high concept horror movies or, you know, like a prestige horror film or anything, that's fine too. But like horror is like one area where it's like, you can't really knock the content because that's what it is. It's horror. You well, know? did that, you see? That's like a beautiful thing. Did you see Scream 5? I haven't seen it yet. No. Watch that um, one. Because a lot of that movie has that running through it where they, they open up and they talk about elevated horror and they talk shit on the remake of Black Christmas for trying to be like PC or hijacking these movies and trying to shove like some social commentary down your throat. And it's really interesting. Also, there's a, uh, a I, I won't give any context to the line, but um, the killer gets asked like, why? Like, why are you doing this? And th- my favorite line in the goddamn movie is I was radicalized by the message boards, which is kind of what we're talking about, where you're online looking at a bunch of stuff. And at some point you change because of it. Yeah. I, and Scream's a good example because like what you're saying with comedy, there is like a, uh, like, I mean, we do a podcast and we put it out there and we just talk for hours on here. And you, you, in the back of your head, you can't help it, but be like, should I like filter myself here? But the thing is, most people in this, in this world feel that way. It's just, you know, when you get online, you got to be careful that you're not leaving some trace of something that somebody can weaponize against you later. Yeah. Because they want what you have. Yeah. I mean, look at what happened to Rogan. All the context was cut out of that thing and it was just made as a hit piece, which is like essentially what you could have done with people watching. You just, get a bunch of footage of somebody and then create some narrative and then deep fake Gavin Newsom's face <laughs> on somebody. And there you go. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, makes sense to, to put it in context, but I'm like, people feel because that's maybe a more public forum that it's, it, it makes it more of it like easier in people's minds to like attack that. Whereas like, yeah. if you heard Joe Rogan, sitting next to you on the subway talking to someone else, <laughs> you're not going to like start pointing a finger and be like a racist. And this, you know, like you're just, you just hear what people are saying unfiltered in their, their thing. I feel like that's a little bit of a strange thing in somehow that like you, you, people are being forced into questioning everything they do and say. And I get that there's like a reason for it too. Maybe that's just like the, the Libra in me trying to see like <laughs> the, the fair side of things or something. But I don't, you know, I don't know. You're a Libra, aren't you, darling? <laughs> uh, <laughs> every yes. time I think of Miss Cleo, every goddamn no. But it's weird because you know I grew up with a bunch of friends who were so anti-religion, and one of the things they would always talk about is you have like Big Brother in your brain, like constantly telling you you need to filter things out. And I'm like, well, we've ended up here anyway. It's like not religion. It's fucking Instagram. Like you have to filter. It's so weird. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's good for a community, but I do well, think, you, people know, watch I mean, <laughs> you know, when you work on a film crew too, I'm like, I can tell you like the difference between working on a film crew, you know, 18 years ago versus now it's a, it's a lot, you know, they sit down and they give you a real, you know, thing about like, this is appropriate behavior. This is appropriate speech when you're on set and this and that. And like, sometimes a lot of people follow that and some people don't. I find there's like even more women who've been working in this business for a long time who relish saying in a completely inappropriate (laughs) stuff. And I find that to be like endearing and funny, you know, you know, like if you're getting to the point where people are actually like harassing someone, that's not okay. But like, 
I feel like people, that's how they get by somehow do, over the course of the day on a film set is by bullshitting with each other and to like tell people you can't say this, you can't do that. You know, like some of the things that they've, you know, the videos that they make you watch are just like too, almost like funny in a way, you know, oh, like yeah. one of the things with a show that I was working on, they had this whole thing where they, you know, they're trying to tell like, all right, for the gentleman, they're like, no elevator eyes. And you're like, you know, and the girl who was sitting next to me was like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, I'm like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I suppose that means looking at someone like lustfully or I don't, you know, and she's like, how do you call that out though? And we, so she raised her hand and she goes, well, how do you know if someone's giving you elevator eyes? What if they're just weird looking? You know, and they, point. and the guy said, you know, I guess you don't, you know, and she was like, well, so someone could report you for elevator eyes, even if that was not clear that that was being done. And he's like, technically, yes, you know, and that was, I had like the whole crew, you know, crew was kind of like scratching their head, like, what? okay, you know, all right, we'll try not to be the elevator eyes. You know? <laughs> That's got to mean like looking somebody up and down, right? Yes. I've never heard yeah, that. So, term. Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that, you know, that they're talking about something more obvious, but, you know. <laughs> because my eyes in elevator go straight to the floor. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, don't, I don't look at shit. No, I try no eye contact. Absolutely not. I'm shocked. Thank you for teaching us that uh, this has been a teachable moment, and we live in the fucking Bay Area. I thought I've heard it all. But no, elevator eyes is in my Rolodex now. Sense. Isaac, I wanted to bring you on here, talk a little bit about that movie, and then start digging into your film history, but we did it. Fuck. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing these stories. No I, problem. I didn't know I was, um, I didn't know we were dedicating so much time to this. I, I'm always game to, you know, keep talking with you guys. Yeah. You're hooked. Talking about something else, right. you know, another time. All right. We'll see you next month. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like, so wait, you live in New York, right? Yeah. I live in New York. All right. We just got to do something out there. We'll come bug you. I, I love you though, man. And uh, I think your film's fantastic. Uh, we will be showing it in some capacity enough. We haven't re released anything really yet. By the mm -hmm. time this episode's out, hopefully we have. Yeah. Because that would okay. be what? Thursday? Thursday. Yeah. So stick with us on that. But man, Isaac, thanks for making time for us again. Of course. You guys are the best. I, I mean it. I mean that. <laughs> <laughs> I beat you too, and I do mean it, actually. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the show at overlookhour at gmail.com. And if you're nice, maybe we'll uh, read them on the show. I've been your engineer, Randy Statt. Please join me along with Clark, Russell, and Oksana again next time. Bye. <laughs>